0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, January 25th, 2021. I am John Putthortz, the editor of Commentary. With me as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hey, Noah. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Okay, we've got a lot of COVID confusion out there. A lot of COVID confusion. Um is everything getting worse or are things actually getting better? Because to hear the Biden administration talk about it, things are terrible and they're not going to get better and we are heading into a terrible, destructive, horrible period. But the stats say otherwise. The stats actually seem to suggest that the peak uh, horror of the last uh, couple of weeks is actually now uh, heading into decline. And I note that as I read some of the uh, public health guidance from our friends in the public health industry. Uh, once again, the the rationale for masks is shifting. You'll remember that first we had to wear masks to stop the spread. Then we had to wear masks to protect our frontline workers. Now we have to wear masks, you know, now then you have to wear masks just to wear masks to stop the spread in general. And now you have to wear masks because this is the only way to keep the variants from spreading. Um, so we have a kind of constantly shifting rationale for the need for masking at all times. Whereas we could just say, don't give me any rationales. Like here's how it is until we've hit 70% herd immunity, everybody should wear a mask period. Don't start telling me that there's a 17th reason that you need to wear a mask because I then don't know that I believed you the other 16 times if you're gonna say, oh, and here's another great reason to wear a mask. It's like, it's like why you shouldn't smoke. So you shouldn't smoke because it's gonna give you lung cancer. It's, you shouldn't smoke because it's gonna give your sister lung cancer. You shouldn't smoke because it's gonna it's gonna give people with asthma more asthma. You know, it's like just say you shouldn't smoke and that's fine. Stop, stop loading on the and here's another thing.
1: Hey. Well, speaking of loading on, there's also this idea now that you should be wearing two masks.
2: Yes,
0: you yes. should <laughs> double
1: mask, right? Which, which, among other things, goes to your point, makes you think. Well, then, what the hell were they telling us this, this whole time? And then, 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 the, then the single mask that we that we were told could stop the whole thing if everyone wore it for a month. Uh, that was that was you know what was that founded in? That wasn't keeping us particularly safe if we really need two. And if we need two, why not three? You know. Yeah, there really needs to be
3: an exploration of the kind of logic here on the part of the Biden administration. I mean, you got, there should be a fair amount of suspicion as to their motives based on their effort to contend in a facially uh, nonsensical way that they didn't inherit a single operative plan around vaccine distribution. That was quite plainly a political narrative. As John, as you mentioned, the case count, had began to decline on January 8th. That was the peak, the seven-day average case rate. And it's been declining ever since. We are now at a case rate that we haven't seen since December 3rd on average. Um, those are good numbers, but the administration seems terrified of good news. And the press seems equally terrified of good news. They, there is an effort to maintain the crisis, And yet there's a weird, there's a weird contradictory
2: impulse um, now that governors are looking at their uh, bottom lines for their state budgets (laughs) and the tax revenue they've likely lost (laughs) to reopen at at the moment. Now, you know, post inauguration, Gavin Newsom in California is like, let's return to indoor dining. We're going to go to a different tier. We're going to reopen because he's looked at his poll numbers and he's facing a possible recall election. And he's absolutely bungled his handling of the pandemic. Same in Michigan, though. Whitmer has suddenly said, oh, we can go back to Dining Indoors here in DC, you can go back to Indoor Dining the rationale for that doesn't make sense if you look at the actual data, because they're reopening indoor dining at a time when the numbers are higher than when they actually closed it and when their initial reason was the numbers are rising. So, again, even citizens who are trying to understand the logic and giving their officials, elected officials, the benefit of the doubt are just throwing up their hands and going, what the hell's going on here?
3: Last night, The Times published a very interesting piece about West Virginia. West Virginia is the, the state leader of vaccine distribution They've done a fantastic job when, when most places were just beginning to vaccinate their elderly vulnerable populations West Virginia was finishing it up they're expected to be done done vaccinating their elderly adult of uh, uh, at-risk population this week and how did they do it and the times puts it in, in, in uh, identifies a couple of areas one the first which gave them a leg up is they opted out of a federal vaccination program for elderly people which was a schedule which was a rate um, and they just said no we're not going to do that. We're going to use uh, local partners, local pharmacies, and created a network of pharmacies that partnered up with these uh, long-term care facilities to deliver this vaccine. And it turns out that the the private enterprise delivery mechanism, distribution mechanism, was more efficient than the public one. Now, that's not to say that this could happen in the absence of the National Guard or Operation Warp Speed. can't. But what it did do right was hyper-localize what is essentially an extremely local problem. It's a global pandemic. But the conditions on the ground where you live vary wildly and thus should dictate the terms of how you address mitigating efforts like vaccine distribution. West Virginia did it really well. Places like New York and California have not. And they haven't really internalized that lesson. But, Christine, as you say, maybe they're starting to see the light.
0: Well, that was also fascinating because the the, the centerpiece of the federal distribution system in public-private partnership is CVS and Walgreens. And they went a different route. They went with local pharmacies. Some of them essentially, it appears, opened at the long-term care facilities precisely to distribute the vaccine. So what does this tell you? It means that part of the problem is you think, okay, well, your local CVS, right? Your local Walgreens. You go into, you go on your iPhone, you type in CVS near me, and practically everywhere in America, you're going to be 10 miles from a CVS or 10 miles from a Walgreens or 10 miles from a Walmart, whatever, right? Okay. Well, but those are nationally run chains with national centers. They are not like, even though everybody who works at them is a local. The policies, the rules, the avoidance of litigation systems, the effort to make sure that you don't get into trouble with your stockholders, all of that, that is a, that these are national companies owned by stockholders or by hedge funds or whatever. And they have a different set of priorities. If, however, there are, there's, you're still in a place where there are like local pharmacists and local pharmacies and things like that, they know everybody. They know every single person who comes in the door, and the pharmacist is the small businessman, and it's his business on the line. And he doesn't want to kill Mrs. You know, Rosenbloom, not that there are a lot of Mrs. Rosenblooms in West Virginia. And he, you know, and so that that's part of not the romance of federalism, but the understanding of why federalism or the you know, or local localization of policy works because as you get closer and closer, people have take personal responsibility for their relationships with the people that they work with and live with and go to church with and and go to, you know, are at the school board meeting with and are at the Friday night football game with.
2: Well, and in in cities where uh, ideological constraints have have damaged the ability to get the uh, shots in the arms of the most vulnerable populations, like here in D.C., where prioritization is giving to certain zip codes based on the racial makeup of those zip codes in the city, you have this you have this uh, situation where you'll have an elderly person st- who stood in line for hours waiting to get vaccinated and they cannot get a shot, even though they're like 75 plus and at risk. And an, an an obese, you know, middle-aged dude from the right zip code does have a shot. So, like, this is the situation where the public then asks their officials, what is the logic of this? And the logic actually then doesn't comport with the science. And then you have further mistrust, further questioning, um, and a breakdown of that kind of relationship that you're describing, John, that can exist organically at the local level. In cities, That's that's broken down enough already during the past year, but with the pandemic, uh, lockdowns, and the the inability of the officials to get these shots in people's arms—it's—it's it's res- there's a resurgence of mistrust that at least I've seen here locally in DC. No, I think the resurgence of mistrust. I mean, you know, you you—it
0: doesn't matter who you are ideologically. Uh, Everybody in the country is undergoing a crisis of legitimacy with leaders, right? So the de- Democrats don't trust the Trump administration and conservatives don't trust, you know, the health, uh, you know, uh, Democratic officials in the states and all of this. And everybody everywhere is giving, is throwing uh, logs on the fire of their own legitimacy. That's why it's worth talking about. Not it's not the Biden administration who said you should wear two masks, right? That's just uh you know, orthodox Jews should recognize the two masks thing because it is it's like it's like OC it's the way in which sort of like uh f- not fundamentalism but like uh, people who believe that the, the most rigorous application of the rules is the best application of the rules. It's like why you have to re- re- recite the immediate th- three times, and you have to do this over and over again? It's like make sure you're dotting the eyes and crossing the T's. If one mask is good, but it kind of is porous, then stuff may go through one mask, and then there's a, it hits the second mask, and then it'll it'll stop. So you know it's really good if if one's good, two must be better, right? So um, it's worth saying. So everybody, and then at some point, there's somebody who's going to say. Oh, come on. Come on already. Like, are you serious that we're going to, you know, uh, somebody said yesterday, some Biden administration official said, oh, the uh, the incoming Surgeon General said, you know, it's very ambitious for us to think that we're going to have the herd immunity by September when schooling starts. So you're going to say, oh, come on, like. Are you serious? Like, what? You No. That's September 2021. That's 18 months since this started. You're going to play this game with me? I mean, everybody jumps off the train at some point. Everybody says, I was a good boy. I did what you told me to do and all of this. But now you are just pushing me too far, which is what's happening in California and in Chicago, which is – those officials are like, uh oh, you know, I think we may have taken this too far. <laughs> you know, Gavin Newsom is very I mean, it is no joke. We it's only it seventeen years ago, a governor of California was recalled for worse for less bad public behavior, his mishandling of power outages than mishandling the state economy and making announcing that people were supposed to stay
3: at home for two months he's oh. facing a recall petition right now yeah they need 1.5 million signatures by march 17th they currently have
1: 1.2 yeah
3: so they'll have those signatures by yep. thursday
1: uh, i think we should talk about what i think is the most astounding thing that has come from the biden administration it, in fact came from joe biden oh, okay, i'm sorry
3: I, I i'm just i apologize to interrupt you i was just doing this quick math Briefly. Um, so we are currently averaging one point six, one point one six million doses of of vaccine administered per day. If we were to do that until September, eight months away, we would have at that current rate, expecting no drop off, no acceleration. We would vaccinate with the first dose two hundred seventy eight million people out of three hundred and thirty some odd in the country. Now, it's assuming that, it, you know, nobody gets their second dose. No, There's no acceleration, no in, no increased supply, which doesn't seem likely or reasonable. So to even just speculate at this stage, based on the current rates that we're not going to get to herd immunity, makes no sense unless you just want to panic people.
0: Right. And and I, I, was told, I was told there would be no math. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Really, it's so early in the morning. You know, my kids, my kids have math in the morning, but 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 not me. No, I'm the wrong Abe, person so, to talk to about arithmetic, but I'm
3: pretty sure that's right. Okay, and even if it's not right, even if it's ballpark, even if it's not right, I like it. So, yeah. uh, Abe, you were saying
1: what is the most astonishing thing to have come out of the Biden administration on this topic, and has come from Joe Biden himself, was that he said over the weekend that there is no changing the trajectory of this pandemic over the the next few months. Now, for all I know, that could actually be true, but um as someone quickly pointed out on on Twitter, the the at, at least, you know, half the justification for for Biden's presidency was that he would be taking charge on day 1 and changing the trajectory of this of this <laughs> pandemic, right? Of this wildly mishandled uh thing. Now there's no changing it. Now, you know, I have to say, I think I think to the extent that it is true, it's because I don't think, actually, that the Trump administration did as bad a job on the pandemic as as has come to be accepted. And what more there is to do um, has to do with sort of things kind of around the margins. I don't know that there is this this massive overhaul that 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 could or needs to be implemented. Isn't okay,
3: that well, a that passive, passive it
1: what- admission?
3: That the Trump administration did everything and anything they could, and that all the tools are currently that we have available in the tool shed are being implemented? Why? The the, the press is falling down on the job here, and they know it, because these two things are incongruous. You can't say that we didn't have a distribution plan, and also, we can't do any more. Okay, but wait. Also, it makes no sense
0: from a... I just said I wasn't going to do any math, Right so 100 days 100 million doses in 100 days say it's only 80 million doses in 100 days and uh, what is it 20 25 30 million people it is thought may may have may have had the virus or you know ha- have it in their system or have antibodies or whatever it is obviously the trajectory changes if you get under those conditions yep. a third of the country has immunity now granted if I am to accept as a matter of course this idea that even if you have immunity, it doesn't mean that somehow you're not passing the virus on to other people. Let's just say, okay, which I gather is what we're now supposed to say if we love science. Um, but even if that's true, uh, you, in theory, the trajectory changes with the vaccinations by definition. People are going to get less of it because there are fewer people to get it because there are more people who are vaccinated. Okay, but otherwise the- we wouldn't vaccinate anybody ever because but- vaccination is like a multiplier effect. If you get vaccinated, you won't get it, and then theoretically, though apparently again we're not allowed to think this, you don't pass it on to anybody else. So there's a there's a double effect from vaccination by the way this is one of the reasons again i'm not an epidemiologist i'm not a doctor i'm just a person who tries to think about what i'm reading and if you say to me you know you can you can get vaccinated but then you can still pass on the virus doesn't that sort of suggest that if you vaccinate people against the virus the virus may give them the vaccine and then they're passing it on to somebody else how are they mystically getting the virus when they're vaccinated, unless the vaccination gives them the virus, I just don't understand the theory of it, since we know that you get a vaccine by getting a small dose of whatever, a tiny dose of whatever it is, the disease is, and then your body that's,
3: reacts to it. and that's then not it, the mRNA one, though, right? That's just the protein. Again, none of us are experts here, but
0: it's a a keto diet, is what
3: you're saying.
2: (laughs) (laughs)
0: Okay,
3: but okay, there's one. As opposed to the Johnson Johnson one, which is more an attenuated string of the virus. Okay,
2: so let me just say there is one thing, and I think uh, Noah's mentioned or you guys mentioning earlier the uh, incoming uh, um, Surgeon General saying, uh, Biden administration Surgeon General saying, you know, we might not be able to open. Uh, schools in the fall or, or reach immunity in the fall. There is one thing that whose trajectory will never change for the Biden administration. And that's how beholden it is to its voters and namely its unions. Right. So you do see what we've been kind of predicting for a while on this podcast, which is that the political forces at play here are going to certainly corrupt the messaging. And we've seen that throughout the pandemic in, in comparing, you know, governors of states where they, you know, opened things and governors where they kept it closed. But I think the Biden administration's crazy messaging over the past week has revealed this uh, quite starkly. And the media's role has certainly been, uh, the, the media has been kind of complicit in the mixed messaging and not calling him to account for this. But you know, teachers are now in many states have pushed themselves to the front of the line for vaccination. Their unions have lobbied for it, claiming they're essential. And once they're vaccinated, they still say it's not safe for them to return to the classroom. It's happening in Virginia and Fairfax County. In Chicago, the teachers' unions just staged yet another out, walkout because they're refusing to return to, to, to teaching. So we're seeing here political uh, maneuvering and testing of the Biden administration in the same way that you know foreign powers usually test an incoming American president. His own base is testing him now, and it'll be interesting to see if he pushes back. He has a pulpit now to say to those unions— Enough. Kids need to be back in the classrooms, and he sort of said this. You know, he said this during inauguration, but he used the word safety. We can have safe reopened classrooms, and they are using safety as a wedge to prevent having to go back to work in I mean, many the cases. Story
0: that was all over the place yesterday was the New York Times story about suicides. Yes. It's
2: horrible, it's horrifying,
0: centering in in Las Vegas, but um, uh, a a they don't have numbers on this yet but like some an alarming increase in teenage suicides and of course correlation is not causation and if there's an alarming increase we've had a we've had a, a we've seen a 15 year uh, you know like uh, increase, horrifying increase in teen suicide but it appears to be have accelerated in the last 9 or 10 months which would suggest that the the the, the life of America during the virus is playing a role in increasing it. And even that number is not the most telling. The most telling is apparently a dramatic increase in teens and kids as young as 5 to 18 being taken to emergency rooms for mental health issues. I don't, I'm not sure I know what that means exactly. Well, that could be a range of things. That could mean attempted a suicide attempts could be mental health. I mean, it's a broad term. Overdosing on antidepressants, or uh, uh, just like what? I mean, attack.
2: anxiety attacks, depression. depression. Right. I mean, there's right. a whole range, and right. those numbers are, are right. have been rising for some time. We know yeah. that that has been. A crisis right. for kids. Um, right. And that's the cost. Again, you can quantify the number of teachers who get vaccinated, the number of classrooms that have new filtration systems, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. It's much harder to quantify the impact of those kind of mental, the, the mental health costs to kids Um and to their parents. Um, but Um But that cost is very difficult to quantify. Even capturing it by emergency room visits doesn't begin. That's the tip of the iceberg right. for what kids are trying to handle with this lockdown and not being able to see their friends. The central problem in having conversations
0: during crises is the trade-offs conversation because the general thing you say in the middle of a crisis at its worst is the house is on fire. So you got to, you got to turn the hose on and put out the fire Before you can deal with the fact of like what caused the fire, for example, you have to put the, you have to, you have to, you have to douse the fire. And that's the argument for don't come at me with what's going to happen to children in case we have to make sure they don't die. We have to make sure that five million people don't die. Okay. But that was the argument for the summer. That was the argument for a different time. And now the trade off. Of what it means to shut down schooling and and sports. It's not just schools, by the way. It's social. The social life of children has been interrupted, and everybody's social life has been interrupted. But obviously, we're se- you know these are the most vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable among us, and so um, we are we were not allowed to have a conversation about trade offs. Every time somebody said. A lot bad stuff is going to happen if you lock down an economy. People were called monsters. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, 200,000 people are going to die. Well, how many suicides are there going to be from people whose finances are ruined? And that's like, well, that you can't say that. How dare you? Old people are dying. You're killing your grandmother. Right? But of course you can say it. Because we all know that it's true, and we all know it's going to be true, and we all know, and yet uh, we are unable to have conversations like that. And if we trusted our political leaders more, we would trust that they were debating seriously these trade-offs when they make the agonizing decisions to do certain things.
3: No, the invocation of science at this point has become positively Orwellian, because we've... there's been repeated studies of the efficacy of lockdown uh, partial or otherwise as a means of arresting the spread of this virus from the Lancet in 2020 in the summer of 2020 to Tel Aviv university to uh, a study published in frontiers of public health and a study out of Denmark, which is pretty much the gold standard. Multiple studies have pretty much come to the same conclusion, which is that it's not that much better than just observing social distance and putting on a mask We don't have a whole lot of data to suggest that this really works. And yet it is and remains the policy preference of first resort, even in places that were reluctant to impose lockdowns are now doing so like Sweden. Israel has gone through like three draconian lockdowns. The UK went through a lockdown and we have all this data to suggest it's not really all that helpful, but nevertheless, it is a a policy that policymakers prefer and that people around them who are invested in these policymakers defend vigorously and with emotional manipulation and emotional blackmail, as you talked about. Um, and it's not, it doesn't seem tethered to any sort of data.
1: Well, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, uh, putting an end to a losing war to, to stop lockdowns now would be to say, we, we didn't know what we were doing from day one. We have, we have gone this far into this thing that um, may be, um, have having been that may have been delivering diminished returns for a long time now,
0: but in a war, you change strategy. Like it's understood, you know, the first uh, eighteen months of the war in the Pacific in World War II was a disaster for the United States. Maybe it wasn't eighteen months; it was shorter than eighteen months. But it was, but you know, it was a disaster. And of course, we didn't even, you know, engage uh, the Germans on on you know, in Europe until 1944, we didn't know what we were doing. You don't know what you're doing. We obviously mishandled the Iraq war until the surge. I mean, there were various things like in wars, you shift strategies because, and then yeah, people come at you and curse you out and say you're terrible and fire you and have commissions and all that. That's part of the problem of Doing life or death things. But I mean, part of the issue here is, you know, nobody made these people run for office. Nobody made them go work for the government. Nobody made them, nobody drafted them into doing this. And so they chose to take these jobs, these powerful jobs with a lot of pomp and a lot of circumstance. And uh, this is why maybe people should t- take a second thought and Thinking that it would be fun to be a governor, you know but, what? It's but no, we harm. also.
2: But to get back to your earlier point, this is we changed generals. That's what Biden was supposed to be as a new general right. in this war against the pandemic, and right. he's filling his administration with the people who made the bad decisions in the first wave—the right. Pennsylvania we'll the person from Pennsylvania, the public yeah. health official. I mean, so so we 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 voted. To have a different strategy, but we're not getting it, and that frustration. It's like build.
3: electing McClellan.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Right. Exactly. Well, I, well, that's an
0: interesting. No, but I mean, here, here's the thing about lockdowns. What is lockdowns are passive, are versions of enforced masking and social distancing. By saying, we don't trust you to keep your distance and to put on a mask, so we are we are making you stay away from people physically. You cannot. Go, you can't dine with them. You can't go to a movie theater with them. You can't play sports with them, and you can't go to school with them. And you're 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 to stay in your house and not go out of your house because we don't trust you. And as I as I as I keep thinking here, uh, this is a terrible talk about trade offs. Like this is a terrible lesson for people to be learning about a self governing citizenry. That it is the it is the conception of the leadership class of the United States that the self-governing citizenry will cannot be trusted to take measures that will save their lives and the lives of others.
2: Okay, so I have to interrupt you to add to that. That was the most egregious bit of news out of California and Gavin Newsom, who when questioned about what data he was basing his decisions on actually said, I can't give you the data because people won't understand it. They'll misinterpret it. So we're going to just keep that data to ourselves because the people can't be trusted to understand what's going on. Only we can.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's a nightmare. Um, and, uh, and as we keep talking about the effects and fallout from the coronavirus, our friend Dan Senor has that great podcast, I Want You Guys to Go to the Apple iTunes Store or to Stitcher or to Google Play and download Post-Corona, his new podcast. He's got a new one out with Raihan Salam, second one with Raihan Salam, and and Rafa Mangel of the Manhattan Institute, both of them. This is the third podcast on New York and the effect of corona on New York, and this is about whether New York can come back given the fact that in terms of trade-offs, the lockdown culture in New York City has led to a spike in crime, which we've also seen all over the country, but is is particularly pronounced uh, in New York, which of course had become this kind of paradisical, safest big city in the world, and 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 has reversed itself. Um, there's a mayoral race in New York in 2021. I said, by the way, on the last show that the primary is in September. I'm wrong. It's in June. Uh, so, uh, things are heating up faster than they used to be in September. It's now in June. Um, uh, but, uh, every, uh, every mayoral candidate, everybody who's interested in the question of who might be the next mayor of New York should listen to this episode of post Corona, which if you subscribe to it, as I keep telling you, I was on one talking about the future of Broadway and popular culture. Uh, Neil Ferguson uh, from the Hoover Institution, the great historian, talked about the historical parallels. Billy Bean, uh, the the visionary baseball genius of the Oakland Athletics and other sports talked about the future of sports. Adam Grant from Wharton talked about the future of work. It is a great podcast. post Corona with Dan Senor, uh, iTunes Store, Google Play Stitcher, go listen. You will thank me for it. Okay. Um, moving on, uh, the Biden administration in its first week is being tested as administrations are always tested on various fronts outside the borders of the United States. Um, Russia arrested leading opposition figure uh, Andrei Navalny, whom, uh, who was mysteriously poisoned, guessed by whom, uh, last year. Uh, returned from Germany was immediately arrested. And then uh, over the weekend, there were protests in dozens of cities, tens of thousands of people in each city in the streets, including the amazing sight of uh, people out demonstrating in minus 50 degree weather in Siberia, protesting the arrest of Navalny cops came out, people were being arrested, people were being beaten. His wife was arrested. His lawyer was arrested. Um, and uh, the question is, uh, what will the response? It's what will obviously Putin's response be? What does this mean? Does it have long, long-lasting implications? That's one. Second, uh, China um, did a massive overflight uh, over Taiwan as a show of force, uh, presumably as a as a, as a first-week test of uh, of Joe Biden, since of course China wishes to uh, restore Taiwan to its. Uh, to its bosom uh and uh, crush the freedom there presumably the way it's crushed the freedom in, in Hong Kong and um and we have an interesting uh situation in an early uh, potential job controversy involving Iran and whether or not the Biden administration will appoint despite a pretty tough talk from uh incoming secretary of state uh or is he secretary did he get voted out anyway Anthony Blinken uh, and Jake Sullivan, the new National Security Advisor, pretty tough talk about Iran and what it needs to do to get back into the into the Iran deal and all of that. But there is talk that they're going to appoint Robert Malley, former um, National Security Council official, uh, as their Iran envoy. And Rob Malley is uh, a very smart, very able, very capable person with absolutely uh, horrifying views of of Iran and Israel and the Middle East and somebody who um, objected when Bill Clinton, for example, in 2000, when Bill Clinton told Yasser Arafat that Yasser Arafat had made him a failure because of Yasser Arafat's behavior in refusing to assent to the Camp David deal that he had come up with with Ehud Barak. Um, And Clinton said, I'm a failure and you made me that way. Rob Malley wrote a whole long piece in the New York Review of Books about how, no, 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 it was all Israel's fault. It was all Israel's fault that it agreed to a deal that would have given uh, statehood and 98% of the West Bank to the Palestinians that Yasser Arafat rejected and then started the Intifada. So this is the guy. So our friend Eli Lake had a piece in Bloomberg saying Rob Malley is being very seriously considered, and he would be very dangerous and uh, this is an interesting test. So these are the tests we got: Russia, we got China, we got Iran. <clears throat> Abe, you were you had you had some interesting thoughts in relation to in relation to what
1: may be going on with
0: Navalny and Russia.
1: Well, it's a hopeful thought. So so yeah. you know, so take it for, for what it's worth. Um, you know, in terms of response, so we far we need
0: that merch. By the way, we have to get some crushing Morosity merch. Absolutely <laughs> for everybody. We're here on this podcast. We've been doing it. Every day for a year, people seem to like it. And if we ever sell anything in the commentary shop, it will be a crushing morosity sweatshirt. But so please go on. Um.
1: So in in terms of uh Putin's response, um, we've seen so far. I mean, what he's done. They've arrested thousands um among the among the protesters, and and I'm sure that will continue. But I did have this this one um semi hopeful thought, which was that you know just as the the Virus and the lockdowns have um, destabilized um, country after country, including many um, good, upstanding countries that that are that do value uh, human rights and individual liberties, but have, but these but have these countries have nonetheless been sort of rocked by um, the the aggregate. Of being locked down, being socially isolated, losing your jobs, and um, as we've seen in the U.S., um, and has given rise to all sorts of um, social unrest, um, it could be that uh, in, it has and will continue to do the same in countries where um, some sort of dramatic change would be actually um, very salutary, and um, in places where, like Russia, where otherwise you know every few years or even more frequently than that, there are um, large-scale demonstrations against Putin's authoritarianism. And uh, you get a little excited, and then um, inevitably it fades away, and Putin cracks down, and then there's some polls showing that some huge majority of the Russian people support him after all. Um, it would be interesting if, if the um, sort of disorienting effects of this past year um, could make some difference in actually uh, pushing the, the anti-Putin sentiment um, over into something more effective.
3: There's another little dirty secret of the Biden years that we're just learning now, suddenly, now the truth can be told. Very <laughs> <After, laughs> good, 20th Congress.
0: After, after six days. Right. After five um, days, yeah.
3: So... Joe Biden doesn't have a whole lot of tools in the tool shed when it comes to going after the Russian regime. All of them, almost all of them, were invoked over the course of the Trump years. The sanctions regime on Russia, now which now includes the oil sector and has done so since February 2020, is pretty, pretty strict. It hasn't had the desired effect, in part because the regime functions like a, a terror-supporting regime. It doesn't really care all that much. For the for the well being of the public and for economic growth, except insofar as it advances and, and secures the regime, the regime's control. What you can do is treat it like a terror supporting regime. Now, not list Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism because that would be very complicated, but freeze assets, uh, limit visas, uh, restrict travel for um, outside of the country for regime officials. That would complicate just about every foreign policy initiative that the Biden administration wants to pursue as far as we understand it, particularly in regards to Iran. But that's, that's the tool that's left to them. And if they were serious about it, they'd invoke it. Um, they did something pretty good by sending a carrier group, a, a force group into the uh, South China Sea in response to this Taiwan breach of the, uh, of their air, uh, airspace, um, which is, you know, good, but cosmetic. Nevertheless, uh, it demonstrates a willingness to confront these challenges when they arise and if the Biden administration is serious about presenting a different sort of face to Vladimir Putin than the one that is that Donald Trump was supposedly showing, then they would invoke these sanctions against individuals. It would also probably sacrifice just about every objective that they have with regard to Iran. But what's what's the priority here?
0: I mean, that's a very interesting. We don't know, and we'll see. We'll see what we'll see what happens. But um, <laughs> I think we the things don't stop. Um, and this notion that, you know, this notion that, uh, that Biden, uh, wasn't going to be tested fast. Every presidency is tested uh, pretty, pretty fast. I mean, uh, Trump, it was weird how little tested Trump was, but you remember, uh, the beginning of the Bush administration featured the downing of the, of a plane in China that we had to sort of negotiate over. Um, Nobody wants to deal with any of this when they just start. Um, and uh, um, one thing I, I, we should have talked about during the COVID thing, but the takes that has, a, has, a, has an effect here too is um, uh, I'm startled the more I think about it by uh, the cynicism of the Biden people in having clearly come up with a PR strategy for how to talk about COVID where they said, oh, we've been dealt with this horrible hand and it's really terrible and we can't make anything better. Obviously, you would say when you're looking at this, given everything that we're saying, that um, this is preparation for saying in March, oh my God, we're doing so much better than we ever thought we could. We're just thrilled Um, that we've exceeded our goals and we've exceeded everything we thought we could possibly exceed. The reason I say this is, you know, I mean, I, one can be very cynical about politics and all that and still say, and, you know, we've been through Trump and Trump's use of the, you know, fake news and his own understanding of fake news and all that. Um, you kind of, it's still, it's still kind of a little jarring that you would play this game with something as serious as, you know, the lives of hundreds of uh, millions of people and, and the economy of the United States and everything like that. Like they're really like, and they must have gone into a back room and come up with this unified strategy that everybody is singing from the same hymnal about. Except Um, Anthony Fauci. No, but Fauci, right. But of course, Fauci has his own purity to contend with. And he, wasn't probably in those meetings because he was too busy uh, in his 47th interview of the day. I turn on the TV this morning. I was telling you guys. So I I never have the TV on in the morning, but I happen to be up. I turn on the TV. So I put on CBS this morning and Fauci is talking at 7.03 a.m. And then I turned to the Today Show and Fauci is talking at seven or three. A.m. And then I turned they to America and Fauci is talking. It was like when 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 Monica Lewinsky's lawyer was on all all five Sunday shows at the same time. So these are pre-taped interviews. They were done with Fauci. All they were asking him about was Deborah Burks and her what she had said about about Trump on on Face the Nation, and there he was, and he was saying, "We're very concerned about this, and we're very concerned about that and the South African variant. And I'm like, when were you when have you had five minutes to have a conversation about the South African variant? <laughs> I mean, this guy is literally going from Rachel Maddow to Chris Cuomo. To this one, to I mean, he is just a PR guy. That's all he is. He is just a talking head. Okay, but the P, but the PR piece has one other. component. Like at the by the way. It's like, <laughs> I don't even know if he has a body below his <laughs> below his shoulders. Now, Let's not
2: go there. Let's just we're gonna no, stop saying,
0: that. To... <laughs> obviously, we once saw his body in full frame at some of those press conferences. But I, li- mm-hmm. you know, he's got a nice tie, and he's got his nice shirt with the buttons and the, <laughs> the jacket. And I don't know that he actually has is not just you know like a, a, a on a stick uh, below that.
2: But he but but all of these officials and we saw this and we saw a preview of this with the way Nancy Pelosi was handling COVID relief before the election. And we're going to continue to see this I think until this huge package relief package is pushed through. There is you know Biden's dealing with a little bit of pushback from his own Democratic coalition about the cost of his relief package. Right there, some of them are saying you know this gives a lot of money away to people who already earn a lot. Of money, like the, there's a three hundred thousand dollar limit on some of this stuff, and some of the Democrats in this coalition are going. This doesn't look good. Like we're already, we know from the experience of these of the past almost year of lockdown and the pandemic that that it's the working class people who've suffered the most in job loss, in wage losses, um, and and actually a lot of our elites have made money during this time. Certainly, the big companies like Amazon and whatnot. So he, some of the messaging about the pandemic in general must also be a tactic. To make sure that the the uh, crisis environment for the economy that he wants to push through with this package is also sustained for a little longer.
0: Uh, guys, you know, I, I I I need to pull back for a second and talk to you about our second advertiser of the day, Quip. You no know, Quip is the grey electric toothbrush. I'm going to talk to you about gum. Gum. Unsung hero when it comes to better oral health. The American Dental Association recommends chewing sugar-free gum for 20 minutes after meals. It was Look, it was only a few short years ago that Quip reinvented the toothbrush for the modern age, and they've done it this time with chewing gum. They've launched a new gum that's actually good for your oral health and comes with a dispenser that'll remind you of the one-click candy you loved as a kid. Quip gum can help prevent cavities and freshen breath when chewed for 20 minutes after eating. It's sugar-free and has tooth-friendly, friendly xylitol, zero calories, and to satisfy your taste buds, Quip added a long-lasting mint flavor, crunchy tri-layer design, and stamped it all with the classic Quip tongue. The slip travel-ready dispenser available in five colors, metal or plastic. Packs and protects up to 10 gum pieces at a time and fits in just about any purse or pocket for on the go. And in a world where we all need to be extra, extra safe and hygienic, the quick release button means you can still share with friends. No wrappers, hands or hassles. Add a gum refill plan for a gift that keeps on giving all year round. Quip's customizable subscription lets you chew and share at your own pace and not worry about running out. Plus, the more you buy, the more you save with bulk discounts on extra gum packs. It's not a substitute for brushing and flossing, but this is a great support for your oral health. Pair it with a Quip electric toothbrush for adults and kids, refillable floss, and more great products. Right now, fits great in your life. In addition to gum packs, Quip also delivers free brush head floss and toothpaste refills every three months from $5. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the misery of in-store shopping. And if you go to getquip.com slash commentary right now, you get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash commentary, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary, Quip, the Good Habits Company. Um, so as expected, the Arizona Republican Party, which called on people to die for Donald Trump in December has uh has voted voted this weekend at a, a totally psychotic goat rodeo that you can watch on youtube if you have the stomach to do so um uh, voted censure uh it's sitting governor uh who won with 56 percent of the vote it's former governor jeff flake uh f- uh once considered Senator. one of the most conservative members of the Senate and uh, a fiscal conservative, of very high vintage, former head of the Goldwater Institute, and Cindy McCain, the widow of John McCain, censured by the Arizona Republican Party, who that whose head, uh, Kelly Ward, who has never seen an election she didn't lose uh, because of her psychosis and madness and craziness and horror and disgustingness, and... Uh, Won re-election uh, as head of the Arizona Republican Party with fifty-one point eight percent of the vote. Uh, this followed uh, an effort in Kentucky, uh, the state literally whose Republican Party was literally built by hand by one Mitch McConnell, who was representative for you know roughly two hundred and eleven years. Uh, uh, 350 people in the Arizona, probably uh, the Kentucky Republican Party sort of central committee. Um, an effort was made to censure uh, Mitch McConnell uh, that only got 10% of the vote, but was uh, out of the three, 35 out of 350, but nonetheless was was taken up on the grounds that Mitch McConnell was insufficiently de- defensive of uh, Donald Trump. Um, uh, does any of this matter?
3: Having a crazy state party absolutely does matter. You only have to look to Virginia for evidence of that. The Virginia Republican Party um, has atrophied in its capacity to talk to voters who aren't in the base um, to the point now that it's just a it's a permanent minority vehicle. Um, And that's so you sort of see that in states where like there's where the Republican Party sort of begins to lose its luster and it becomes very insular, very quick, and begins to appeal only to the base. I saw something to that effect from Laura Ingram, um, who you know, said, that, you know, Mitch, uh, you had this story coming out of um, minority leader Kevin McCarthy's office, saying that they're just getting crap from all angles, that they're getting dumped on from the establishmentarians, and the institutionalists, and they're getting dumped on from the MAGA people, and they're getting dumped on from the persuadable voters. And they just can't make anybody happy. It's kind of what happens when you try to make everyone happy. Um, you make no one happy. And that's what they're dealing with now. So Laura Ingram's prescription is, you know, just just worry about the base. Just only talk to the base. Just focus on the base. Just try to make the base happy. Don't worry about persuadable voters in the middle or on the fringes. Um, and that seems like a pretty a prescription for losing. And maybe that's what you want. If you want, you know, to be as radical as possible, as uncompromising as possible, if you're not a vehicle for winning elections, which parties are, but more just in in Oregon for advancing a persecution complex and insulating people from criticism who deserve it. um, Then maybe that's what you want. You don't necessarily want to be a winning party. You just want to be sort of a, a a club. Well, okay. So uh, if you look at the
0: history of various Republican parties over the uh, state parties over the course of the last decade, uh, Virginia is the most dramatic, like Virginia actually had, you know, a Republican governor uh, elected who was uh, unfairly and unjustly uh, prosecuted and driven from office, his uh, his prosecution overturned by the Supreme Court. Um, um, uh, but in 2014, uh, an unexpectedly strong showing by uh, Ed Gillespie, former head of the RNC, Uh, Had there been more investment uh, by the National Party, Ed Gillespie might actually have won that race. Uh, And yet, at the same time, the Virginia Republicans figured out a way to ditch Eric Cantor, the um, number two person uh, in the House, and uh, then nominated uh, a, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a very radical guy for the Senate, whose name I can't remember. Um and has now become yeah kind of like a crank crank version of the Republican Party. Uh, Colorado, which recently is 2014, uh, arranged rearranged itself to make sure that a more moderate candidate, uh, Cory Gardner, ran for governor over a more radical candidate, Ken Buck, uh, getting Ken Buck a house, essentially Cory Gardner's house seat, so Cory Gardner would then get. To run for Senate and won the race. He lost this time in part because the Republican Party has moved so far to the right, and uh, Colorado's politics have changed that um, he no longer had uh, all that much support in the suburbs. Cory Gardner, who is not a particularly you know conservative politician, we will never see another Cory Gardner, uh, or not never, but uh, in in. In future rate, you're not going to see this. That was a Cory Gardner being moved into that race in order for Republicans to win the Senate in 2014. Uh, that was the response to the Republican Party's horror at seeing Sharon Engel, uh, Richard Murdoch, and Todd Aiken uh, in 2010 and 2012 destroy their chances of a majority by being lunatics and uh, having to be uh, run out of town on a rail. The idea was okay, well, you know, we better get better people in here and not let, the, not let the crazies take over the nominating process. And so uh,
3: Joni Ernst won in. In 2012, oh, the NRSC took a very publicly hands-off approach after 2010. They got a lot of crap for investing in these races, for investing behind winnable candidates like Mike Castle in Delaware, and places where there was uh, you know a winnable candidate who could take the seat. Mike Castle would have won that seat in 2010. Um, but they got knocked off in primary. Sharon Angle, I think, was 2012. No, she was 2010. She was, Sharon
0: was 2010. She was 2010. Christine 2010. O'Donnell, who knocked off Mike Pratical. Right, so. That was 2012.
3: Okay. And, um, and Missouri.
0: Right, in Missouri the, was 2010. There, anyway, but here's what's interesting. 20. So in all of those races, and this is where it gets interesting. In all of those races, and in the AOC race, and yeah. in uh, various other places, uh, sometimes these uh, revolutionary transitions took place because people snuck up uh, un unbeknownst to uh, the mainstream, they snuck up and 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 slaughtered them uh, in low turnout races that nobody expected anybody to run in. So Dave Bratt beat Eric Cantor in Virginia by sneaking up on him. Cantor did, paid no attention to the race, had no idea that he was in primary trouble, just uh, as was true in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's race, which I remind you, she won the primary by a grand total of 15,000 votes to 10,000 votes over Joe Crowley, 25,000 votes in a district of 550,000 people. So, um, uh, uh, Robert Bennett was knocked off in Utah by Mike Lee at a convention where he had not bothered to try to organize because no one had ever lost in that way. Uh, Aiken, Murdoch and Angle uh, all sort of followed somewhat the same trajectories. I don't think you can look at what's going to happen now and say any Republican in any race anywhere is going to be surprised by an insurgent. Right? They're not going to be surprised. No one's sneaking up on anybody anymore. That game is over. It's already been seen how it works. And so they're not going to sneak up on them and beat them. However in an effort to evade and avoid being snuck up on and beaten, they could go crazy. They could essentially become QAnon, sort of like implicit QAnon supporters, just so that no one could get to their right. And that is what I think the danger is here, is that on the one hand, sort of mainstream politicians are now at risk from these insurgents. And on the other hand, their general response as a marketing tool is to try to co-opt the message rather than say, I am not going to let this party be taken over by psychotics. They're going to try to wound the psychotics by by being a little more psychotic. And uh, I don't think that's great.
2: Um, well, and you, you still have your wild card of Donald Trump hanging out in Florida and, you know, between golf rounds, you know, floating the idea that, you know, he's going to issuing basically small threats between now and when his impeachment trial begins, that people better come into line and support him and you have. Uh, people like Matt Getz, you know, flying to Wyoming this week to rally against Liz Cheney because of her uh, support of impeachment. So you, th- there's a lot of civil war going on inside the party. Some of it, I think, will be purifying and good. But I think you're right, John. If, if the if the typical move of uh, in is the Republican panic to co-opt the crazy, that's long term a very bad strategy for for gaining back a majority. And
0: it
3: could. Be and it's short- not new. What? It's not right. new either. Um, Thomas Massey's is kind of this eccentric libertarian congressman. Um, and I'm paraphrasing him here because he said something that was pretty good. Um, but going back all the way to 2010, you know, he was he said, again, I'm paraphrasing that we were under the impression, you know, that the Republican voting base was really interested in returning to conservative principles and a libertarian view of, of government. And um, what they really wanted was just the most crazy guy in the room. At the time, people like me and Rand Paul and other libertarian types were the craziest guys in the room. Uh, so, which is a pretty, yeah. you know, uh, intro, a bit of introspection that was that was interesting to hear from him, and it, it you know it makes a lot of sense yeah. when you think about it. I want to come back to this, but first, I need to talk to you guys about ExpressVPN.
0: Because how did you choose which internet service provider to use? The sad thing is most of us have very little choice because ISPs operate like monopolies in the regions they serve and they use this monopoly power to take advantage of customers. Data caps, streaming throttles, the list goes on. And worst of all, they log your internet activity and sell that data to other big tech companies and advertisers. That's why to prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity, I protect all of my devices with ExpressVPN. Simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your ISP cannot see any of your activity. Just think of how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, video you watch, or message you send gets tracked by ISPs or other tech giants who can then sell your information for profit. That's the reason I recommend ExpressVPN is the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP. You just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you are protected, and ExpressVPN does all this. Without slowing your connection, that's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com/commentary. That's e x p r e s s vpn.com/commentary to get extra three months free. Go To slash commentary right now to learn more. Okay, so here's my final. Oh, hey, well, I just want to
1: pick up on Noah's point about uh, wanting the craziest guy in the room. I think, you know, that's you know, a huge part of Trump's appeal generally was this idea of like, you know, why should the left have all the fun? Why, why, why should Democrats have all the fun? Um, you know, there's there's before Trump, there was this idea of a conservative demeanor or a sort of conservative temperament, which meant that you were measured and reserved and thoughtful about things. Um, and, uh, you know, activism was was mostly the the that was the stuff of of, of the left. Um, and what makes the moment, John, you're, that you're talking about, I think, very scary. The idea of um, sort of, you know, trying to co-opt the crazies or, or you know, sort of. Being killed by the immune response essentially um, is 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 that now that they've gotten the fun, it's not not fun from our perspective, but what they see is fun. It is very hard for them to let go of that. It's right. it's much like you know limiting someone's freedoms after after granting them.
0: Look, we are going turkey. What Often intoxicant? Yeah. Yes. Well, okay. So so we have a very interesting thing that's going to go on over the next eighteen months. Uh. To you know, twenty months or something till the midterm elections, which is the Republican Party is going to be in a civil war. The Democratic Party has an opportunity, in my view, to deal—not it's a death blow because parties never undergo death blows, despite all this talk about how there'll be another party. that probably needs to go away, but has as the opportunity to sort of deal a kind of minor to to shove Republicans. Uh, into minority status in every purple state uh, by not being crazy, right? I mentioned this on on Friday's show that uh, Nathan uh, uh, Wurzel had said, our Republican consultant said, look, if we're just not crazy, who knows what we can do, because the Democrats are now, you know, now a six foot three inch tall guy uh, with a wig on can claim to be a girl and play field hockey and get a Title IX scholarship. I mean, whatever you want to slice it. I know that's a terrible injustice that I've done with my caricature, but just go with me here. Whatever it is, um, cultural liberalism, leftism, wokeism, um, cancel culture, all of that, that they have a real... That There is a real idea that this may, or real signs that this may be the dominating force of the Biden administration and the Democratic Party thus going, and there could be an enormous reaction. If they could avoid it, if they can pull themselves back from it and let the Republican Party go crazy, every one of those suburban voters who might bounce back to the Republicans will Maybe vote again for the Democratic Party for the third time eighteen twenty and twenty two and then at some point they're not Republicans anymore, and they're not swing voters anymore. they are democratic voters. They have looked at the Republican Party over three elections and said the these p i can't have any they are not they sorry they are nuts, and so uh this is a time of testing for the Democrats as much as it is for the Republicans about. Are we going to devolve into woke, crazy people and QAnon crazy people dominating our politics? Because I don't really understand where things go from there. You could have a circumstance in which the woke people are actually more scary or scarier than the Q people. And the Republican Party's internal reckoning based on its embrace of irresponsible, crazy, radical, lunatic politics will actually be postponed or rewarded because the Democrats have gone even crazier. And we should really take that up tomorrow. So I think we will take that up tomorrow, but we have taken too much of your time today. So for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz, Keep the candle burning.